The following is taken from the diaries of Sir Kingsley Stuttergard, transcribed with the assistance of Lady Elizabeth and Dr. Best. Third March, 45th year of the glorious reign of King Earl. We set off from Port Montlier with a strong breeze behind us. I'm most pleased to report that the airship handles as well as can be expected as work from the common craftsmen we've been forced to do business with. Our benefactor on this jaunt has shallower pockets than those who have sponsored my expeditions in past years, but needs must. The Scientific Research Council have no taste for truth these days, and I fear I have burnt bridges with the businessmen who last funded us, after the unpleasantness around the ownership of the Smeltazal cacao leaves. Nonetheless, both myself and the crew were in high spirits, the latter being typical of crews I have commanded in years past. With sufficient cajoling, their simple peasant minds can be kept sufficiently on the base tasks fit for them. Now we sail southeast. With this wind and a full envelope to the airship, I expect us to be in unknown territory before too long, an arena in which, far from the petty treacheries of self-congratulating high society, my honest skills may come to the fore. 10th May, 45th year glorious reign of King Earl. The airship has crashed. We faced stern winds and unremitting fog for the last two weeks, and although we kept ahead of the front, the maelstrom finally caught us. We came down in the night. Fortunately, the stocks are relatively undamaged, though I mourn the envelope. A large gash has split her side, and we lie on the rock limp and flaccid as a Kentish fop. I am given to understand one of the crew has lost an arm as well, although one of the others seems to have saved the lad with some kind of crude commoner's understanding of bandaging, so I suppose all's well. The loss of half a man's worth at no loss of food ration notwithstanding. At first light I surveilled the area, ascertaining that we have alighted on a perilously high bluff above a desolate plain. A vast grassland, bereft of features aside from the occasional cluster of vegetation. Indeed, the bluff on which we have come down seems the only geographical feature of note. I fear this storm has imprisoned us, not merely far from home with meagre rations, but worse, in a location so stupefyingly dull that no reports back shall bespur the morning tabloids. In brighter news, the face our home and transportation has wrecked upon is startlingly vertical, and any progress, either up or down, will be fraught with peril. I face the challenge as ever, with a dignified stoicism. 11th May, 45th year of the King, and so on. An astonishing day. I could not have been more mistaken regarding the land in which we are surrounded, for, although the flora remains horrifyingly dull, we spied a sight today which could not be explained by any amongst us. Across the barren plain below we caught sight of the first creatures which inhabit this unclaimed land. They were plainly peoples, of such stature that I should have mistaken them for buildings or statues, were one or two distant upon the horizon, not in movement through the landscape. Their progression was slow, such as I was certain my eyes deceived me, but steady review confirmed that these behemoths were, in fact, the inhabitants of this land. As noon approached, we spied a magnificent specimen, clearly the proportions of a man, but even at the incredible distance at which we saw him, plainly a colossal figure, perhaps three or four stories tall. I could not believe my eyes at first, fearing it a mirroring of my days spent engaged with large quantities of ludinum, but their testimony was supported by the appeals of the crew. Of course, their simple minds went at once to redoubling effort towards fixing the airship, but my command on this expedition shall not be undermined. That way, chaos lies. I reminded them that our position was quite safe upon this bluff, far above even the most monstrous of the giants we spied. I reminded them of the solemn and vital purpose of this task, to wit, the glorious expansion of our earthly knowledge, in whose service this airship mishap may be providing the perfect opportunity. 
Tomorrow we set off for the Copse of Trees, which lies just a short climb above our base camp, for raw materials and for forage, but most importantly of all, for science. 13th May, 45 Rain King Earl. As I suspected, our further expeditiousness has borne fruit. Myself and a party of my most trusted commoners ascended to the flatter plain. The landscape is thinly wooded and uneven, with little to speak of. Two days' hike across this plain brought us sight of a plume of smoke, to which we approached with caution. Within a clearing here, we have sighted around seventy savages, living in a manner now so familiar to me from my many and varied expeditions, I must wonder if perhaps these primitive peoples have a manner of communicating with one another. So similar is their manner of being. They occupied a number of large families, children underfoot, inhabiting a half-score huts cruelly constructed from the local wood. We will now approach these savages carefully. It is my preference not to destroy them utterly, but I am cursed far too often with this burden the world has chosen for me. Addendum. I now write from within the village. Once again this place has unveiled a terrifying marvel upon us. The smaller villagers are not children. They are adults. They are proportioned as their larger brethren, but around one quarter to one third the height. They go about their day as any other of the denizens of this fascinating place might, chatting in their foreign tongue, trading, welcoming all and sundry. They are simply miniature people. Some of the men have become most disturbed by this turn of events, and believe we must leave as soon as possible or become cursed or some such, but I will not have such momentous learning sullied by ignorance. I was forced to dole out floggings to the two least enraptured men to foster a sense of exploratory wonder. We shall stay here this night and learn more of these people. 15th May, 45th year. It has been frustrating going. These people speak not a word of King Earl's tongue, a stupidity it is difficult to forgive them for. All the while they babble in their own meaningless patter. Nonetheless, I note here my preliminary hypothesis on their genesis. It is my firm conviction that Lady Nature has spared these souls the burden of growth. A particularly quick-witted savage, whom I have named James, seemed to respond well to basic hand signals. Through this crude but expressive form of communication, we ascertained that procreation was initiated in the usual base manner, but that birth results not in helpless proto-humans, but fully formed, almost entirely functional men and women, of whom we now saw going about their business in the small village. If there is any difference in status between the largest and smallest of them, it lay beyond our interpretation. 17th May, 45th year of reign, K.E. I am now convinced that the giants we viewed from the Overlook are the same people I now find myself in brotherly communication with, perhaps but a few generations removed. This raises immediate questions, but I pride myself on following a line of inquiry to its end before making rash deductions. Would that my crew be so disciplined. I have already had to calm the spirits of three men by a stint in the box. These people are a most fascinating breed, and we shall continue to study them, such that any findings can be brought back with glory to the court of King Earl, and my inglorious temporary lack of welcome there shall be rightly amended. 21 May 45, etc. Our communication with James continues well, such that he appears to have gathered, in his way, the nodes of their life which present interest to us. Such it was, this afternoon, he approached me with the widest grin a man ever did see, so eager was he to present his findings. He knelt before me, and though I protested that fealty should be presented to King Earl, of course, he persisted in presenting to me his crown. There, amongst his hair, I saw another village of people, 
none larger than a termite, and most much smaller than that, living out their lives on the scalp of this man. Each were as perfectly formed and human in appearance as James was himself. A few looked up at me, and I swear I could see their minuscule expressions of vague disinterest, as my visage surely blocked out the sun before continuing about their day. They were more numerous than their echo of their world which lay around me. This revelation further fueled the suspicions that had been raised idly by some of the men in their simple, bumbling fashion, and after a short lecture on the importance of evidence, I have instructed them to provision for a yet further expedition of this vertiginous bluff. Protestations from the crew have been logged, and their originators punished. 31st May Was this my worst fear, or is it my greatest discovery? Henceforth, we shall have to assign it to the latter camp, but I would be made a liar were I not to report my trepidation. I could not make sense of what I was seeing until we reached some suitable distance from any tyrants of scale, and it became clear. We repelled down a gargantuan chest of a man. Our airship had come down upon one of his trapezoids, and all we had hitherto seen had taken place between there and the crevices in the lateral dorsal muscles of this colossus. Looking up, our laterally removed position gave us clear line of sight to a geographical head, though our scale afforded us no view of its eye at that juncture, only the full summit of his cheek. I write now safely back upon the flatter ground of its collarbone, a ridge we have been traversing these last three days. We shall, I suppose, journey back to the village, and hence to the airship, though control of the men's jitters will be a variable of paramount importance whilst our research continues. 15 June. Our contacts are vegetarian, it seems, subsisting on the light and quick-growing flora which coats the form of the bipedal homeland. We continue to deplete our rations, but have begun supplementing them with the abundant vegetation which does surround us. 31 June. It appears a rather protozoan stage of biology these peoples are caught in. Much as the Scientific Research Committee theorises that there are creatures which divide down the middle, so too the simplistic first draft of replication and continuation of a species appears to have stuck fast for the inhabitants of this broad plain, and indeed their own inhabitants. 3rd July. Our efforts at research are continually hampered by the complete lack of interest by any of the local peoples in childbirth or parenthood. The rationale should be reasonably apparent to all but the simplest dullard. They have little need of either. Much as a foal can run within hours of birth, so these peoples needed only the barest of instruction on the world from their peers before they were happily put to work but two weeks past their stupendously physically impressive birthing. The youth of Canterbury could surely take heed from this. 6th July. James has delivered once again a discovery which has advanced our research yet further. Presumably noting our intrigue and desiring once more to experience the praise and adulation granted him at the presentation of the colony upon his brow, he has found for us another society of his minuscule compatriots. These live upon the same ground as we are now stood. The conurbation would not fit upon the head of James or his peers. The microbial city is perhaps five feet across, and peopled by figures of such diminution they are barely visible at all. They appear to be more socially advanced than James and his compatriots. I viewed what appeared to be a building which functioned as a town hall, a marketplace, and what could be a formalised policing function. However, whether these organisations were kin with the instinctual operations of the ant, or the surreptitious toilings of the communist, I remain uncertain. 15th July. 
We have put to work the eyeglasses, which have, so far, been solely employed to view the far-off giants beyond. None have yet surpassed the mighty size of the figure we temporarily inhabit. I have instructed the quartermaster to repurpose the lenses from one into a makeshift microscope, though he is a belligerent man with much loose talk about absurd requests and basic physical properties of glass. His impropriety has been noted. Certainly, the smaller creatures we have been able to study thus far are faster, much more nimble than their more typically sized brethren, and their giants spied from the shoulder are sedate creatures. As yet, we have noted no movement of the being we inhabit. I should surely like to measure its metabolic rate. As yet, we have no suggestion to indicate it is living, though I find it hard to honestly countenance such an idea. At current, it is hard to say exactly how small these creatures may get. Thought which gives me trouble. There is no suggestion that once they become too minuscule for registration upon the human eyeball, that they would cease their advance towards numerousness nor complexity. How small do they become? How widely are they spread? How could we possibly know? 23rd July. The expedition to the Neck ended in disaster. Two men fell to their deaths before any reliable measurement of the pulse of our Goliath could be ascertained, and the remaining men returned without a second attempt. I fear a mutiny is not far off. Our supplies are thinning, and the squeamish grumblings regarding the edible bounty grazed from the upper back grow louder. One of the few loyal men has reported that the idle chit-chat of the crew has taken a dark turn. His loyalty shall not be forgotten, though his name escapes me at present. Thus, with heavy heart, I fear it is time we made for home. The envelope has been repaired with bindings constructed from the leaves of this place, and we have resupplied with the more edible of the plants. We make for Port Muntley on the morrow. 24th July. A fine wind saw us off, and we were shortly afforded the first look at our home these last months. As the Colossus receded from us, we could detect no movement with the naked eye. Intermittent measurements, however, confirmed that the ankle of the left foot, currently raised, had shifted two degrees throughout the day. 2nd August. Today spied a group of fifteen individuals around nine feet tall on the plain below, the largest group of giants yet seen, suggest arbitrary starting point for size division. They were heading south at a lolloping pace. Around three hours later we spied another of the same generation, clearly dead and more decomposed than the distance and speed of his former compatriots would suggest. There was no sign of how he met his end, though I would wager that were we to draw closer we might see a dedicated army meticulously dismantling the structure of the body. I gave no such order to go closer. We have no way of knowing what order of men were capable of such a feat, nor how capable they might be of visiting a similar fate upon our airship from distance. 19th August. As suspected, no indication of tools or language use amongst the very largest of the creatures. They are a simpler people, and with each generation they grow, as we do, more learned. 29th August. The weather has grown less clear, and our sightings of the inhabitants of the plain less frequent. However, today we sighted through the clouds the first infant I had seen in many months below on the plain. At our present height, its size was difficult to judge, but appeared nearly as large as the bluff man on which we had spent two enlightening months. This indicated to me that if indeed it does grow as nothing else we had seen had done, it would extend to a truly unthinkable size. 22nd November. We have returned to Port Muntley to little fanfare. The men left the airship at once, and I fear some ill-tempered business if our collaborators do not come forth with the promised wages, as indeed I suspect they may not. 
In brighter news, I have been invited to speak at the Scientific Review Committee on my findings. 25th November. The Scientific Review Committee hearing was a sham. I was invited only to be mocked and made the butt of barely literate jests. They think me a charlatan and demand proof of the sights which I have attested with mine own eyes. Their ignorance was to be expected, but it fills me with rage nonetheless. The implications of the world into which we stumbled are enormous. I suspect that the societies of the minuscule men, growing greater in social cohesion, may at some point come together as a mighty supernation. I could not confirm this, nor whether such action might take place as part of a laterally conceived idea, or as a biological maxim adhered to unthinkingly by the communal and near-insect-like men as they approach their minimum size afforded to them by our natural world. They may then undertake some process of self-sacrifice or artifice, which to produce the sight which I spied through the clouds as we rode the fortuitous winds back to Canterbury. But what is this biological minimum? How can we be sure that even now the airship, the plants which we have stitched together the envelope, perhaps even the bodies of myself and my erstwhile crew, are not carrying these creatures? What evidence have we to suggest the level of intelligence peaks prior to approaching our own? And if not, can we be sure that the potential millions which may be percolating through our fair city mean us good or ill? 4th December. Washed self, boiled clothes, disinfected room. Still no word regarding Lord Lowe's microscope. The man is a fool. He has no idea of the danger. 25th December. House broken into by crew, furious at the lack of forthcoming salary. I appeal to them to see reason and accost our traitorous benefactors, to which I believe some may attempt. Several goods stolen. No matter. They should be disposed of in any case. More concerning is recontamination of abode. Washed self boiled clothes, stripped remaining furnishings, and poisoned walls. 1st January, 26th year of King Earl's reign. Cleansed self. I am destitute. Lord Lowe will not permit the use of his lenses. None of the standard microscopes shows the creatures anywhere. Might they be yet smaller than the power of these devices? If so, we are surely doomed. My skin has begun to flake from the boiling water I use to cleanse myself. This gives them further crevices into which to secrete themselves, were there not too many already. 4th January. The dried food I ordered has been inspected. It is as clean as it is possible for it to be. 268 days since first exposure. I must be clean. I am not clean. Nothing is clean. Any itch could be the beginning of their reclamation. 287 days since first exposure, no signs. 297 days, no signs. 307 days, no signs, but that proves nothing. Soon the child will come. All will be flat. I know that now. 333 days, I must be clean. Nothing can be clean. 352, I can feel them. Get them out. Sir Kingsley's diary was found in his abandoned home. It was the only object within, apart from nearly 400 cans of dried food and 100 drums of sterilised water. Sir Kingsley's whereabouts are currently unknown.